Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, Dow Jones was down a little over 200 points today, closing back below 26,000. NASDAQ Composite down 124. That's a bigger percentage decline, 1.7% approximately. The Composite being led lower by the tech stocks, particularly the FANG stocks, once again taking a bite out of the market. The markets, though, were positive on the week thanks to that huge relief rally that took place on Wednesday following the results of the midterm elections on Tuesday. But as I said on my Wednesday podcast, I thought that relief rally was just another dead cat bounce, that the fundamentals and the technicals still looked horrible for the U.S. stock market. I expected that rally to reverse. And of course, that process has already begun Thursday and Friday. I think it will continue next week. And I think the rest of those gains will be surrendered. You know, looking at some of these key stocks, General Electric, which I've been talking about, it's no longer part of the Dow. Remember, in June of this year, it got the boot. That stock was down 5.7% today. Again, another 52-week low. In fact, the lowest it's been since 2009. Stock closed at $8.58. But it did get as low as $8.15. It was down almost 10%. I don't even know if there was any news on the stock today. It just continues to melt down. Um, It's down over 35% or maybe exactly 35% since it was kicked out of the Dow Jones. I wonder where the Dow would be if GE were still a part of the index. But probably what's more important is why isn't anybody concerned about what this means? I mean, when GE was down uh, at... It's record low, which I think was 570 or something like that in March of 2009. That's when it bottomed out. I think GE was going to go bankrupt, just like General Motors went bankrupt or Chrysler went bankrupt. If it wasn't for the bailouts, if it wasn't for TARP and uh, quantitative easing and the slashing of interest rates, I think GE and a lot of other companies that were you know, in similar positions uh, would have gone bankrupt, but GE was saved and a bigger bubble was inflated. But the fact that GE is down here should be, you know, waving a warning flag. I mean, investors are very complacent. This is just another one of those dead canaries that these miners are ignoring. Uh, Nobody uh, is concerned that they're dropping dead one after another. Of course, the the biggest uh, canary is what's going on in the housing stocks. I mean, we got more bad news on housing uh, this week, you got the warning going forward from Dr. Horton. I think the stock was down 10%. Uh, I think maybe yesterday on the news, and the home home builders were kind of mixed today. I mean, some were up, some were down, but they got clobbered yesterday. I think on the uh, Dr. Horton news, but I also 
read a story about the Seattle housing market, about how this is the worst that they can remember. I mean, it's even worse than it was in 2007, 2008, and it's just getting started. And the biggest uh, part of the article that really jumps out is the explosion of inventories, not just the slashing of prices, which is also unprecedented, but the number of homes uh, on the market. And that's going to continue to grow and grow. In fact, one of the reasons that the housing collapse of 2008 wasn't deeper, and it should have been deeper. I mean, we didn't fully deflate that bubble. I mean, that's why the bubble is so much bigger now, and it's going to deflate. But one of the reasons, apart from the Fed slashing interest rates and buying up mortgages, right, and and all those things that artificially interfered with the free markets restructuring of that of, of the housing market, was the fact that Emboldened by all that cheap money, you had all of these private equity funds that were created for the specific purpose of buying up single-family homes, a lot of them out of foreclosure, and they would just come into the markets, these funds, and they would buy dozens of them at a time or hundreds of them at a time. And I think they were overpaying, but they were buying in what they thought was a bargain, a distressed market. And the plan of these investors was to rent out these homes and to eventually sell the homes probably to the tenants who were renting them or maybe somebody else. Well, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men, it's not going to work out for these investors. And I think what's going to happen as interest rates rise and the markets go down, uh, the cost of carrying the debt, Never. there's a lot of leverage there. They don't necessarily have mortgages, but they do have leverage in their funds. And I think between rising interest rates and redemptions, which I expect to be coming from investors, I think that these private equity funds are going to be selling uh, their homes. So rather than buying, they're going to be selling. It's kind of like the Federal Reserve threatening to do quantitative tightening and actually is doing quantitative tightening right now. So instead of buying uh treasuries and buying mortgages, the Federal Reserve is selling mortgages. Well, I think these private equity funds, rather than buying homes, are going to be selling them. So they are going to be adding to the supply and they don't need the permission of the bank to do a short sale. They just sell because they don't have any mortgages. They just got to get whatever uh, the market will allow. So rather than buying from the banks or buying from individuals who are selling, they are now going to be competing with individuals who are selling, competing with banks who are foreclosing. So this is probably going to be a much bigger real estate bust than the last one, especially when you throw in the commercial uh, collapse, which really didn't happen the last time around because, uh, you know, I think, you know, crashing interest rates really held up the commercial end of the market, but that's not going to save it this time, especially given what's happened, the evisceration in the retail space. And the one thing that's been holding up these values has been the low interest rates, even as you've had rents uh, you know, going down due to vacancies and store closures. But this, this uh, commercial bust, I think, is going to be unprecedented. I think it's going to be the biggest commercial real estate collapse in in U.S. history. And, you know, it really shouldn't surprise people that the current real estate bubble is bigger than the last one and that the bust will be bigger because, again, the bubbles are proportionate to the fuel that that inflates them. And the housing bubble in, you know, 2008 
you know, all they got there was 1% interest rates for a year and a half, approximately. And then the Fed raised interest rates by a quarter of a point every time they met. And it took a couple of years to get back up to 5% or whatever. So we had artificially low interest rates, but they weren't as low as they were this time. And they weren't kept there for nearly as long. So the lower interest rates are held below where they should be. And the longer they're kept there, the more distortions uh, the Fed creates. And if you're talking about a real estate bubble, the lower rates are held and the longer they're held there, the bigger the bubble that you're going to get. And so this is a much bigger bubble. Yes, we don't have necessarily the collateralized subprime mortgages because now the subprime market is wholly owned by the U.S. government. So the losses are still going to be there. They're just going to be confined to the taxpayer rather than initially absorbed by private companies. But there are still a lot of mortgages that are owned uh, privately that are not of the subprime variety that are going to go bad. And all these commercial mortgages, a lot of them, these loans, not maybe mortgages, are going to go bad. Uh, so the losses, I think, to banks are going to be unprecedented especially as the cost of keeping their deposits is going up, right? They now got to pay uh, their depositors. This is another thing I didn't understand why you know, people thought higher interest rates were going to be such a boom for the banks. You know, the banks were getting their deposits for nothing. Now they actually have to pay up to get deposits. But the problem is going to be they're going to be losing a lot of money on the loans that they made out when rates were low because they're now going to be going bad as rates are rising. The collateral is going to be collapsing and they're not going to be uh, issuing new loans. So th this is just all being ignored by everybody who wants to focus on the economic boom and ignore the economic bust that's uh, that's staring them right in the face. And of course, it isn't an economic boom. It is a bubble. The problem is the people who are in the bubble have no idea that they are inside one. In fact, speaking about bubbles, one of the uh, debacles du jour today is a company called Yelp, right? Uh, online, uh, what, uh, you know, uh, restaurants or reviews or, uh, you know, forget what people use Yelp for. I have the app on my phone, but I, you know, haven't used it in so long. I kind of forget why I downloaded it. But apparently other people maybe aren't using Yelp as much anymore either uh, because the stock was down 27% today on bad earnings. And, you know, a lot of these high flying, you know, uh, tech type companies, uh, you know, real speculative companies, they're all going to be blowing up. You know, you have all this money who was crowded into these trades because when interest rates were low, money was free. Everybody was willing to gamble. Uh, but now that the, you know, the alcohol is being drained from the punch bowl, people are starting to sober up. And when they do, you get these huge uh, declines. Price of gold, on the other hand, was down today. It was down about $14. We closed, I think, about $12.09. And the catalyst for today's sell-off was actually a much hotter than expected producer price number. PPI, producer prices, up 0.6% in one month, which is a big gain. In fact, this is the biggest jump in the PPI in six years. And on a year-over-year -year basis, producer prices are up 2.8%. The market was looking for an increase half that size, 0.3%. Even year-over-year, -year, when you strip out food and energy, we were still up 2.6%. 
which is you know considerably above the 2% level that the Fed is looking at. Now, of course, the Fed is looking at consumer prices, not producer prices. But of course, nobody can consume what is not produced. These are really wholesale prices. Of course, they are going to get passed on to the consumer. Uh, so consumer prices are headed higher. But again, the markets don't get it. Gold dropped. The minute this number came out, gold dumped about 10 bucks. I mean, it was already down on the day and then it sold off and never recovered. On the other hand, bonds were relatively stable when the number came out. I mean, maybe rates ticked up just a smidgen, but actually bonds rallied on the day. Now, maybe the weak stock market had a little bit to do with it, but the irony of it is that you get these numbers that show much more than expected inflation. And what do investors do? They sell gold and they buy U.S. treasuries. Now, that is the worst thing to do if there's more inflation. I mean, gold is an inflation hedge. So if inflation is picking up, you would want to own gold to protect yourself from inflation. On the other hand, the one asset that suffers the most, where the most value is eroded away because of inflation, is a bond. Right? A bond is specifically payments of cash in the future. And the more inflation we have, the less that future cash is worth. So bonds should be sold. Investors did the opposite of what they should have done in response to worse than expected inflation numbers. They should have sold treasuries and bought gold. But of course, they're all playing checkers. Nobody's playing chess. They're not thinking about the future moves. They're simply looking at these numbers and say, oh, more inflation. That means the Fed is going to have to raise rates. Well, we already know they're going to raise rates because they keep saying they're going to raise rates. But as soon as these numbers come out, all the, the algorithms or all these trading programs that are written, it's like, oh, higher inflation, higher interest rates, more rate hikes. That means good for the dollar. That means bad for gold. So sell gold. But the check moves that they're not looking at is what happens as a result of higher interest rates. The economy goes into recession. Right? There's no other result that's possible. Real estate prices go down. Stock market goes down. Wealth evaporates. And what is the Federal Reserve going to do in response to recession? It is going to cut rates. So regardless of the rate hikes that the Fed does initially, they are simply the overture to the rate cuts. The rate hikes sow the seeds of future cuts. And investors should be looking beyond the mountain to the valley of rate cuts that are coming. And of course, all these rate hikes are happening very slowly, right? A quarter point every uh, you know couple of months, right? Every meeting. The move down back to zero is probably going to happen in one swoop, right? Let's say the Fed gets back up to two and a half percent before it's obvious we're in recession. Well, they're going to go from two and a half to zero without pass and go. They're going to go directly there. So the rate cuts are going to happen you know, very abruptly, uh, and these rate hikes are happening slowly, but gold traders should be looking to the, the rate cuts. And more importantly, remember, all these people are, you know, they're Phillips curvers. They just assume that if we have a recession, well, then inflation is going to come down. It's not going to work that way this time. Inflation is going to keep going up. In fact, when the Fed has to cut rates and launch QE4 to stimulate the economy that is in recession as a result of their prior hikes, that is going to throw fuel on the inflation fire. Inflation is going to get worse even as the economy gets weaker, and that is the most bullish 
environment for gold. That is the stagflation environment that traders are ignoring. But if you're smart, uh, you are accumulating both gold and gold stocks on on this news. In fact, you know, the same thing is happening to the oil market. You know, the oil prices have been killed over the past uh couple of weeks two or three weeks in fact again today we're actually back below $60 a barrel uh, just well 59 80 90 I forget the exact price but we closed below 60 59 handle on the price of West Texas crude remember the year started oil prices were under 50 and I had a forecast of hitting $80 by the end of the year and I almost made it in fact if you wanted to look at Brent uh, I made it because we got well above 80 in Brent, but I was actually talking about West Texas, and I think we only got to about 77 and change, so I didn't quite get to 80 in Texas, and I didn't expect as big a pullback uh, as we've had, and I think the reason that oil prices have fallen so quickly is because the expectations of global inflation have actually escalated very quickly uh, over the last uh, few weeks, given the data uh, and I think even in the U.S., I think people are even starting to factor in a recession in the U.S. The only one who's not doing that is the Federal Reserve because they have yet to alter their rhetoric. In fact, part of the reason I think that oil continued lower this week and the dollar continued higher was the release of the Fed minutes on Wednesday afternoon. Right, They came out at about 2 o'clock Eastern time. The minutes were released. And what was you know significant about the minutes was not what they said. But what they didn't say, right, there was nothing in the minutes to indicate that anybody at the Fed was worried at all about the stock market volatility or more particularly the big drop in October in the stock market. Not a mention of that. Also, no mention of the horrific problems that are obviously developing in the housing market. You would think that this would be a matter of concern. After all, the last financial crisis was precipitated by a collapse in the real estate market. We're looking at all the same signs that the same thing is about to happen, only on a bigger scale, and the Fed doesn't even mention it. Maybe there were some people who were thinking the Fed would acknowledge uh, some of these signs and say, oh, you know, maybe we're a little bit more cautious. Maybe we're going to pause on a wait and see. I mean, certainly even if Trump behind the scenes was getting to the Fed, the Fed had all this weak data that it could point to, right, as an excuse. And of course, the elections had already just taken place. Uh, so, you you know, uh, maybe there wasn't a political pressure, although, you know, the minutes, I don't know that they're, you know, when they actually get these things prepared. I think they're the minutes of a meeting uh, that had taken place before the election. But either way, the markets, I think, were disappointed that the Fed couldn't give a damn about any of this. And I think they read into it. Well, that just means that, you know, full speed ahead with the rate hikes. And so that, you know, again, put pressure on the dollar to go up and that puts pressure on commodities to go down, puts pressure on the emerging markets and all of the, the, the parts of the world that are suffering right now from the strong dollar and the expectation that the dollar will continue to strengthen disrupting global credit markets and global economies. Of course, once again, the oil traders are playing checkers, not chess. Uh, they are not seeing the big picture here that as the U.S. economy goes into recession because of these higher rates and the U.S. economy is particularly vulnerable because we have more debt than everybody. I mean, everybody wants to talk about all the debt that the emerging markets have in dollars. What about all the debt Americans have in dollars? I mean, yes, we have dollar income, but we have more dollar debt than anybody. We're the most levered up 
uh, society probably in the history of the world. And we are going to be, you know, hit particularly hard uh, by rising interest rates and falling asset prices, which are a direct consequence of rising interest rates. So as rising interest rates push the U.S. economy into recession, well, then the Fed has to reverse course. They got to slash rates to zero. They got to do QE4 and then oil prices go through the roof. But in the short run, they're going down through the floor again, although I don't know that there's much downside here below 60. If you look at a chart, this seems like a relatively reasonable price uh, for the decline to stop. It's about a 20% decline now. So everybody's talking about a bear market in oil. So maybe the fact that all of a sudden people were so bullish a month ago, a lot of people were looking for $100 oil. I wasn't the only person that was bullish on oil. Believe me, there are a lot more people bullish, which made me a little cautious that we were going to have a correction. Didn't necessarily think it would be this be- this uh, deep a correction. But now that all the people who are looking for $100 oil are looking for $50 oil, uh, maybe we've uh, we've seen a short-term bottom. Now, I wanted to uh, talk a little politics again. One of the things that I forgot to mention, although I meant to on my Wednesday podcast, was to look at the Connecticut governor's race. I know everybody right now is looking at the Florida senator's race because, of course, they're having a recount. And so it's possible maybe that that one can be back in the Democratic camp. We'll see what the results of the recount are. But I want to talk about the Connecticut race. I mean, obviously, of course, uh, I have a home in Connecticut. I used to be a Connecticut resident. In fact, I ran for Senate myself. As many of you know, many of you contributed to that failed campaign back in 2010. So I do have an interest in Connecticut politics. Some of you might not know my campaign manager, J.R. Romano, is now the chairman of the Republican Party in the state of Connecticut. You know, it would have been great if he was a chairman uh, when I was actually running because, you know, the chairman back then was very much in Linda McMahon's camp and really, you know, trying to be a roadblock. I'm sure uh, Jr. is a much uh, uh, fairer, more honest uh, chairman. He was a really good guy. I was happy to have him uh, on my campaign. And, you know, I think uh, he's doing a good job as best you can. Uh, with the Republicans in Connecticut, I understand he's you know he's captaining a sinking ship, so it's very difficult. Uh, but um, but he's the chairman of the uh, the Republican Party in Connecticut, and the Republicans, of course, had a terrible uh, result in the elections. They lost uh, seats locally. Uh, the uh, Chris Murphy, who is the senator, one of the two Democratic senators won easily. I mean, basically, you know, just killed the Republican opponent. It wasn't even a close race, a typical landslide uh, where you have just about everybody voting Democrat. But the governor's race where you had Stefanowski, who was the Republican, right, running for the open seat against Democrat uh, Lamont and Dan Malloy is the current governor, so this is an open seat, so it's highly contested. Malloy is not running for re-election for the obvious reason that he's wrecked the Connecticut economy. I mean, not like it wasn't wrecked when he was elected, uh, but, you know, he's wrecked it even more. He didn't turn anything around. It is a complete disaster. You know, Tom Foley uh, ran against him originally, and I think that was a close race. Uh, And I expected a lot of voter fraud at that time uh, in the big cities and places like Bridgeport and New Haven. Uh, But that was a close race. Uh, But the Democrat won. But this race was also close. And again, the Democrat won again in a very close race. Looked to me like the same type of shenanigans were going on in some of these big cities that are the hotbeds of the, you know, the Democrats when it comes to Connecticut. But What's really interesting is that the 
governor's race was so close. I mean, it was almost about 50-50. And what that means is a lot of the Democrats who voted for Chris Murphy, who voted Democrat for the U.S. Senate, crossed party lines and voted Republican for governor. And then, of course, a lot of independents who split their votes decided to vote Republican and vote Democrat for the United States Senate. Now, why would that be? Well, the most obvious reason is that the Connecticut economy is a disaster. Taxes have been going up. Real estate prices are collapsing. And it was a pocketbook issue. They voted uh, in their own self-interest. They, they, they needed a change and they wanted to get rid of the Democrat who was wrecking the state. And so they voted for a Republican. Well, if they recognize that these Democratic policies have been destroying the local economy, why can't they make the same connection or connect the dots to the national economy? Why are they voting for somebody who wants to bring the same policies to the nation that have wrecked the economy of Connecticut, right? Can't they figure this out? Hey, if it's the, the Democrats have screwed up Connecticut, why do I want to send more Democrats to Washington to screw up the entire economy? And I think this means that philosophically, they still want to be Democrat. And maybe the the Senate is, is you know, is less doesn't affect them as much as their own governor. I mean, they can look at their local issues and say, you know, locally, we, you know, we got to change, but maybe they, they don't really see the difference between the, the Senate, that it's not as, as in, impactful on their daily lives. So they can still cling to these democratic ideologies and, you know, be one of the good guys. But when it comes to their own pocketbooks in their own local state, no, no, there they want to go uh, and vote Republican. And what we need is for some of these people to figure this out, that if you're voting for a Republican governor because you don't like the disaster that was created by Democratic governor, then don't make the same mistake and send more Democratic congressmen or senators to Washington to screw up on a national level what they're screwing up on a state level. Now, of course, it's also possible that the voters just wanted to send a message to Donald Trump, that it wasn't even about, you know, political, whether they believed in the policies, they just don't like Trump. And they thought a vote for a Republican senator was like a vote for Trump. And so it was an anti-Trump vote that they cast when they voted Democrat for Senate. But when it came to their own state, they, you know, they cared more about the actual economy because it affected them more. And of course, you know, all the congressmen from Connecticut, I think we have five, uh, they're all Democrats and all of them got sent back, right? So no Republicans had a chance there. Uh, so even though, again, people are voting Republican for governor, they're still voting Democrat for their representative to the House. Now, you know, what are the other interesting things about this election, which really goes back to my point of my podcast that I did not too long ago on the voting age and why I think we need to dramatically increase the voting age, right? Not just back up to 21, where it was before we lowered it by constitutional amendment to 18. But I think it should be a lot higher than 21. I think it should be 30, maybe 28, you know, but no lower than 28. And again, that's because I want people voting who have the same amount of real world experience as somebody 21 was 200 years ago. Because a 21-year-old 200 years ago probably didn't live with his parents. He was already married, had a couple of kids, and was working. And he was responsible, and he understood a lot more about the economy, and he had a bigger stake uh, in, in what was going on, and maybe he had already accumulated uh, some wealth and some property and you know, was willing to vote for politicians that were going to protect uh, property and, and, and you know, pursue the rule of law. 
But people that are 18 years old today, most of them have never had a job, especially now thanks to the minimum wage. Kids don't even have summer jobs or they don't have jobs when, you know, when they're in high school, they don't have paper routes anymore. So kids have really no work experience whatsoever. And then kids stay in college. They don't get out till they're 22, 23. Then they go to grad school. A lot of them don't start working until they're closer to 30 years old. And, you know, I want people to have a few years in the workforce before they start casting ballots. But one of the reasons in particular is probably uh, one of the major determinants of the outcome of the governor's race in Connecticut were the college students who are, are going to college in the state of Connecticut and who, of course, they're all 18 years and they're all voting. And in fact, in Connecticut, they have same day registration and they were lining up these college kids on campus and they were registering them to vote while they were online. And of course, they're all voting Democrat because they don't know any better. They're just, you know, they're just a bunch of kids who have been, you know, brainwashed and indoctrinated and they're all in line voting Democrat. But a lot of these kids don't even really live in Connecticut. I mean, they're going to college in Connecticut, but they're not going to raise families in Connecticut. They don't own property in Connecticut. They're just passing through. I mean, what do they care about what happens to the state of Connecticut, right? They're not planning on staying in the state of Connecticut. They're just getting jobs there. Yet they're determining who is the governor of that state. I mean, they don't pay these taxes. They're students. They don't have jobs. They don't have anything withheld from their pay. They don't care about what happens to real estate values. They don't own any property. So you have these young kids going to college, never worked a day of their lives, don't pay any taxes, aren't really committed to the state. They have no idea where they're going to live, yet they're determining the outcome of these elections. They don't care that the people who actually live there, who plan on being there and who have families there, they're suffering and they're trying to vote for some relief. They're trying to vote for a Republican governor, right, to kind of clean up the mess. And then their votes are canceled out by a bunch of 18, 19 year olds who are passing through town, taking a, you know, getting a worthless liberal arts degree. So if we simply raised up the voting age to a level that would you know, keep students from voting, then you wouldn't have to worry about this. The only people who would be voting in local elections would be people who actually lived there, people who actually had a stake in the outcome that, you know, were committed to their to the state and wanted to be there. And, you know, they wouldn't be screwing up the, you know, the government for the people who actually want to live there and who have to live with all the taxes and regulations that these kids are voting for or electing uh, governors who will support, but they don't even have to live within them themselves, right? All they're caring about is, hey, do we get a, a cheaper tuition? Do we get some uh, help uh, from the government to make, uh, you know, to make our college less expensive and then they'll vote for them? But who gets stuck with the bill? The people who are actually living in the state, not the people who are just passing through uh, to get their liberal arts degree. I wanted to finish up the podcast, though, on a little bit of a lighter note, talking about cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin, of course, continues to just stay in this narrow range. I just took a quick look at it as I'm recording, and it's at 63.20. So I do notice that it came down a little bit. I think on the eve of the elections on Wednesday, I think we actually got closer to 6,600. And now we're back down to 63.20. So maybe just a teeny bit more volatility, but still a relatively calm market. I think it's the calm before the storm. A lot of people think it's before the next big move up. Maybe, but I think more likely it's the calm before the next big move down. But what I really wanted to talk about today when it comes to cryptos is not just uh, Bitcoin, 
but the tax problems that some people are having. And again, this is something that I warned about very early in the year when I saw the big collapse in cryptos that happened. And of course, we had that big increase in 2017. And I said a lot of people were going to have some serious tax problems with the IRS because of realized gains that were booked in 2017, but where the taxes were not paid. And then a lot of people then lost all those gains in 2018 and will not have enough money to pay the taxes. And that's exactly the subject of an article I just read last week about a college kid who put, I think, $5,000 into Ether right early in 2017. And late in 2017, he basically exchanged close to a million dollars worth of Ether for a lot of other cryptocurrencies, right? He was kind of diversifying his portfolio. He was participating in a bunch of ICOs. And he wasn't going back into dollars, right? He was using his uh, Ethers, directly purchasing these other cryptocurrencies, which is what Ether was used for, right? So that was one of the benefits of having the Ether is that you can directly use that cryptocurrency to buy these other cryptocurrencies. In fact, a lot of these other cryptocurrencies, the only way you could buy them is if you first had the Ether, which was creating demand or, or Bitcoin. People use Bitcoin too to buy these other cryptos. And, and so he thought he was doing the smart thing and he was diversifying and he wasn't thinking about the tax implications because he wasn't actually getting any cash, right? He was just taking one cryptocurrency and exchanging it into another. But of course, as I pointed out, the IRS regards that as a sale and a purchase, right? If you use your cryptocurrency to buy another cryptocurrency or you use it to buy a product, if I actually use my Ethereum, my Bitcoin to buy you know, a cheese sandwich, well, then the minute I do that, that's a taxable gain. I got to look at, well, what was the cryptocurrency worth when I bought it? And what was it worth when I used it to buy the sandwich? And the difference is, is a gain or a loss. And what happened, of course, is this particular guy was using Coinbase. And Coinbase had to turn over all of their information to the IRS on all their customers. And so the IRS gets a notice that this kid sold, you know, you know a million dollars worth of Ether and hadn't declared it on his tax return. And now it turns out that he owes about $400,000 in taxes. You know, and I'm not sure, actually, if the IRS found out about it or he just, you know, was doing his taxes now this year for 2017 and his accountant delivered the bad news. I've actually, I'm not really sure how this happened. But in any event, he now realizes that he owes about $400,000 in taxes on the gains that he had in 2017. And of course, this is all short-term capital gains. He didn't even get the benefit of long-term capital gains because he bought and sold within the same calendar year. So he's paying ordinary income taxes, which, you know, when you have, you know, close to a million dollars of gains, you're paying a lot of tax at the ordinary rate. So he owes about $400,000. The problem is he doesn't have $400,000. His entire crypto portfolio when I, as of you know this article was worth about 125,000 still a considerable gain from the 500,000 he started with but in order to pay the IRS $400,000 in taxes he would have to liquidate his entire crypto portfolio which means he would have no money left 
from the 5000 he started with, and he would still be in the hole of about $300,000, and now he's got to work out some kind of offer and compromise with the IRS to get out of jail. Otherwise, he's going to be paying this thing off for the rest of his life. But this is the problem that a lot of people are going to have. A lot of people probably don't even know they have this problem yet, but it's coming. I mean, this happened in the dot-com crash when people you know, exercised their options, but then they didn't sell their stocks because they wanted to wait a year to get long-term capital gains. And while they were waiting, the stocks collapsed and they no longer even had enough money to pay the taxes on the option exercise. So they got completely wiped out. I mean, people don't realize that individuals cannot carry losses back. See, if you're a corporation, you can carry your losses back for three years, right? So if A corporation makes a lot of money in 2017 and pays a bunch of taxes and then has a horrible year in 2018 and loses money. They can actually apply for a refund and get the taxes they paid back the previous year because they lost so much money this year. Uh, But that's not how it works for individuals, which is another reason that this whole tax is completely unconstitutional. But in any event, uh, when it comes to individuals, the IRS says, no, you can't go backwards. You can only take losses and carry them forwards. So if you lose a lot of money, so let's say this guy had lost a bunch of money in cryptos in 2017, and then he made a bunch of money in 2018, he can still use the losses from 2017. He can carry them forward and completely offset Uh, the gains from 2017. But if you make a lot of money in 2017, you owe the U.S. government taxes for that year. doesn't matter how much money you go on and lose in 2018. That's irrelevant to what you owe for 2017. See, the government's pretty smart, at least when it comes to this. I mean, they're devious. They don't want people gambling with their money. Right. They want to make sure that if you have a big profit, that you send your taxes to the IRS. Right. You don't gamble that profit. Right. They're fine with you gambling your portion, but they don't want you gambling with their portion. And that's basically what this guy did. He should have set aside the 400 grand to pay taxes and just speculated with the other 600. Instead, he took his 600 and the IRS's 400 and put it all on the table and rolled the dice. And of course, you know, he got a lot of snake eyes and his you know, million dollars went down to 125000 And so not only did he lose a bunch of his money, he lost all the money that he owes the IRS. And now in order to pay the IRS, the guy's bankrupt. And in theory, I don't know what other assets he has. He probably doesn't have any because he's a, he's a college student. So there's probably not much the IRS can get from this kid other than the entire value of his crypto portfolio. And if they don't, settle for him. If they don't offer to forgive this, then this kid's never going to work. He's going to have to work in the underground economy, or he could just pick up and go to another country and start with a clean slate, which is probably why the IRS would be willing to probably forgive the balance of the debt uh, if he'll just surrender 100% of uh, his, his crypto portfolio. But there could be other people who have done this that have actual assets right, that maybe have homes, have some equity, have some other stock portfolios, and they made this mistake. If the IRS smells blood, you know, they're not going to be so generous. If they think they can get more money, believe me, you know, they're going to go for it. So there's going to be a lot of problems uh, because of the money that was lost in 2018. And, you know, by the way, you know, Bitcoin today is actually worth less than it was a year ago. I remember for a long time, because we had this big drop uh, earlier in the year, 
But the crypto bulls would always fall back on all, oh, but sure, but over the year, you're still up 50% or you're still up whatever, right? So they would still go back and talk about over an entire calendar year, even though we're down from the highs, you're still ahead. Well, now over an entire calendar year, Bitcoin is down, right? If you bought Bitcoin a year ago, you paid over $7,000 for your Bitcoin. And if you still hold it, you know, it's worth closer to six. So it is no longer up uh, year over year. It is down. And believe me, I think it's going a lot lower. Mm-hmm.